around Thanksgiving of 1969. I had just gotten a job as an entry-level reporter for the Post Standard, the local newspaper here in Syracuse. I was young. I had my dream job. Life was good. But just six weeks later, my entire world came crashing down around me with the arrival of one little letter. To Daniel Frederick Wilson, you are hereby ordered for induction into the armed forces of the United States. I had been drafted, and although I'd make a dozen stops at various induction centers, training facilities, and Air Force bases, I was ultimately destined for one place, Vietnam. What followed was eight weeks of boot camp over at Fort Dix, and for a while, it looked like I was doomed to join the infantry. But due to my degree in journalism, there was a chance I might be able to weasel my way onto the writing staff of Stars and Stripes. Then, just a few days before we were due to graduate, my drill sergeant pulls me into his office with some bad news. Stars and Stripes did not need any more bodies, but there was an opportunity for me to become a military dog handler. It wouldn't keep me out of the field completely, but according to him, all I'd have to do was roll up with my canine, sniff out a few booby traps, and after that, the engineers would roll up, and I'd be back in the rear in a hot minute. But as it turned out, all that stuff about being safely in the rear turned out to be a bunch of bull, because me and Tack, my three-year-old German Shepherd, ended up in more firefights than I could have possibly imagined. Tack got his name after a particularly close call that occurred on a routine patrol near Kuchi. We're on point when suddenly, Tack, who was called Rex back then, started alerting like crazy. I had never seen him act so downright scared before, and when the lieutenant sees this, he orders his guys to unload their weapons onto the jungle ahead of us. What followed was nothing short of a lead storm, with 556, 30 cal, and 40 Mike Mike just tearing up foliage in front of us for a solid minute. When the fire finally stopped, nothing moved, and there was a moment where we thought the whole thing might have been a false alarm. But sure enough, as we pushed through the jungle, we found drag marks, bloody trails, booby traps, the works. If it was not for Tack, there's a chance the entire platoon would have been wiped out. He saved our lives. God dang, boy. I remember this one grunt saying, The hound of yours is sharp as a tack, isn't it? And it just sort of stuck. Tack sniffed out every single ambush we ever came up against. Even the one that almost killed him. Some poor grunt managed to snag a tripwire connected to a 125mm tank shell. I don't even really remember the blast. I just remember waking up on my back with someone dragging me back through the jungle. My first thought was, for Tack, and as I looked to tell the soldier dragging me to go back for my canine, I saw that it wasn't a soldier at all. It was Tack. He had one of my shoulder straps between his teeth and was dragging me back towards the relative safety of the platoon with all his might. We were putting out a lot of fire, but Charlie was giving as good as they got, and one burst of a machine gun fire ripped up the ground in front of me before I watched a piece of my fatigue pants just pop open. I let out a scream loud enough to wake the dead, begging for the platoon's medic. Only, the next thing I know, I hear Tack let out this almighty yelp before he dived on top of me. I had no idea what just happened, and for a second, I thought he had been shot, but he had not. He was trying to shield me from the bullets. The poor little guy had no idea how the enemy were hurting me. All he knew was that he wanted it to stop, 
even if it meant putting his body in the way of their bullets. I tried to push him off of me. I tried to keep crawling, but he wouldn't budge, and only when the shooting died down could I shift him. But that time, instead of getting to his feet, Tack just slumped down next to me. He was alive, just barely, and I said that the platoon commander, if he didn't put him on the medic vac with me, that I'd make sure he never received canine support again. It was a total bluff, but it sure worked. Yet, it'd take some considerable amount of time and insubordination to save Tack's life. When we landed back at Dak 2, I carried Tack off the Huey myself before hopping over the medical tent to demand one of the surgeons save his life. Get that mutt off my operating table, soldier, one of them said. I'm a doctor for Christ's sakes, not a veterinarian. I didn't say a word in response. I just pulled out my 45, pulled back the slide, and then pointed it at his head. The surgeon looked at me in the eyes and saw months of firefights, booby traps, and night patrols staring back at him. A moment of silence followed, and then the surgeon got to work saving Tack's life. I'm sure you'll be as pleased as I am to learn that he survived. Turned out to be nothing more than a few shrapnel wounds, and although it took him a while to get back on his feet, Tack did make a full recovery. The incident left the brass in a predicament. I know there was at least one lieutenant colonel who wanted me breaking rocks in Leavenworth, but... Then there was another who was in the middle of writing me up for a bronze star for having saved the lives of half of his battalion. In the end, their decision was more political than disciplinary. Rather than risk angering the rest of the dog handlers in country, the brass just scratched my bronze star and gave me a medical discharge instead. I couldn't have cared less about some janky metal because I left Vietnam with the one thing that really mattered to me. Due to the wounds he'd sustained in combat, Tack had to be scrapped from the military's dog program and it looked like he was headed back to the dog pound back in the U.S., unless, of course, I stepped in to take ownership of him. That's how I ended up back in Syracuse with my best friend in the world. I was an unemployed 24-year-old with a bum leg and a bad case of PTSD, but I didn't care because I had tack with me. It took me just short of a year to get back on my feet, and fortunately... I ended up picking up where I left off at the Post Standard after a chance meeting with the editor. I'll be forever grateful to him for giving me that opportunity, and with the structure and steady income it brought, I gradually got my life together. Then, one day he called me into his office with the proposition of a lifetime. Some editor friend of a friend in DC needed an article written, only the prospective author had just taken ill and couldn't make the assignment. Struggling to find a replacement, he'd fruitlessly called up to their New York desk, which is how it made its way to us. What's the subject? I remember asking. You ever heard of those churches down in Kentucky that handle snakes during their services? A little, I replied. I thought it was illegal. Since when did the law stop anyone from doing anything, kid? True, but who's this piece for? National Geographic, he said a smile stretching across his face. I wouldn't want to go ahead and jinx you by saying this is your big break, but I think we both know what this is. The drive down to Appalachia was going to be one son of a bitch, but since the newspaper was covering my gas money and Tack was used to being on the move, there was nothing stopping me from getting on the road the very next morning. The drive down to Kentucky was a nine and a half hours of watching featureless suburban sprawl slowly erupt into the green rolling hills of the Appalachia. And by the time we got there, 
My ass was in a coma. Tack did not seem to mind the journey, though. Every so often, he'd stick his head out the passenger side window to renew his spirit. That, and when it came to provisions, I had little choice but to buy him a burger at the roadside grease trap, onions, mustard, and all. We rolled into Lexington late afternoon, and to my surprise, getting information on snake-handling churches wasn't all that difficult. All it took was a few pictures of Budweiser down at the VFW, and I had those crusty old veterans singing like canaries. They told me I'd have to look out on the eastern side of the state if I wanted to talk to any of the old snake handlers, and given that the practice was outlawed, finding them was certainly not going to be easy. That didn't bother me, though. After all, I had Tack with me, and we were used to finding things that did not want to be found. One guy said he hadn't heard of anyone handling snakes in years, but last time he did, it was happening at the old church up in the hills. And so, I set out for the eastern Kentucky hills with nothing but the name of a small hillside hamlet called Three Forks. The next morning, I was back on the road driving in the direction of West Virginia, somewhere by the state line. By around four hours in, it felt like I had not just traveled 200 miles, it felt like I traveled back in time by around 50 years, too. It was everything. The old Hudson trucks, dated-looking signage, and by the time I was out near Three Forks, the roads had degenerated into nothing, but dirt tracks flanked by dense, dark woods. Every so often, these claustrophobia-inducing country roads would open up into what the locals call hollows, relatively flat areas where the road is sandwiched by homes and small businesses. Frog Pond Hollow was home to the Rabbit's Foot General Store, a place that doubled as both the Hollow's gas station and barber shop. And as I pulled in to top up my gas tank, the clerk wandered out to greet me. Not often we see New York plates around here, he said, eyeing me suspiciously from across the forecourt. I explained I was in the area on business and that I'd appreciate some gas and a bite to eat. For a buck fifty, the guy brought me a plate of something he called corn pone pie, which was basically cornbread with beef chili filling, along with a plate of raw hamburger for tack. After I complimented his cooking, he nodded in appreciation before correcting me that it was his wife's, and that I told him he was a lucky man to have such a fine cook at home. He finally began to warm up to me a little. When he asked what kind of business I was on, I didn't want to spoil all the goodwill by telling him that I was a reporter, charged with writing a story on a neighboring community that would well end with them being arrested, so I broke it to him gently. The instant he heard that I was there to write an article about snake handling, I could tell he felt almost tricked into talking to me. Sir, please hear me out. I just want to tell these people stories, I countered. This country was founded on the promise of religious freedom, and the fact that snake handlers can be arrested for practicing their faith is frankly un-American, so please help me show the world that these are good people here. Help me get these people their rights back. I fought for this country's freedom in South Vietnam, and damn it, I'll fight for them here too. I think it was the last line that got him. He gave me another look over, then mentioned for me to follow him inside. According to the clerk, almost everyone in the Appalachian knew of at least one church that still took up serpents, as he put it, and it came to no surprise that those who practice it were still persecuted by the state. Three Forks had been the subject of a crackdown on snake handling in the mid-50s after their pastor almost lost his life to a rattlesnake bite, 
Since then, they'd taken their rather unique form of worship underground. But a more pertinent question than where are they now was how in the hell did their pastor survive the bite of an eastern diamondback, a snake whose venom is almost 100% fatal when untreated. Victims described the pain of being bitten by one as like two red-hot hypodermic needles piercing your skin and the venom causing the flesh surrounding the bite to blacken and rot. Even worse, the intense swelling of the affected area is said to be one of the worst forms of pain imaginable. But snake handlers vow never to seek medical attention or take any kind of painkillers in the event that they're bitten. Instead, they put their survival in God's hands. Sometimes, he comes through for them, others not. I asked the clerk if he knew of any local snake bite fatalities, but he just shook his head. They'd get bitten all right. Not often, but they do. But the way I hear it, they always seem to pull through for some reason. Who knows, maybe the Lord really is looking out for them. It's then that I asked how I'd go about securing an invite to one of these snake handling services. The clerk just looked at me, asked what unit I served with, and then once I confirmed, he'd walked into the back to make a phone call. When he re-emerged, he held a small, torn-off piece of paper in his hand, one with the following note written on it. Walk into the woods off Laurel Fork after dark. No pictures. It was all the information he had for me, but it was all I needed. That night, once the sun had fully set, me and Tack walked out of the small Inez Motel where we were staying at, got into my car, and drove back down to Three Forks. The darkness gave the overgrown, rust-eaten place an ominous feel, and the closer we got to Laurel Fork, the more anxious I got. By the time we reached the dead end of Laurel Fork, and I switched on the old flashlight I kept in the glove box, I'm not afraid to admit I was downright scared. It was the first time that me and Tack had gotten anywhere in the dark in an unfamiliar area since Nam, but there was something else to do something I could not quite put my finger on until the following night. Like I said, I was so nervous that Tack could sense it, and he stayed glued to my heel for most of the walk. Then, after a few minutes of trudging through the darkness, I began to hear something. Something that sounded almost like singing. Moments later, I saw a dim light shining from beyond the trees, somewhere in the distance. I got a little closer, then realized what I was looking at. It was the shape of a large revival tent, set up in a small clearing, and the light was coming from the lantern of a dark, shadowy figure. Since I figured they were expecting me, I switched my flashlight back on, then slowly began to approach with Tack by my side. Welcome, brother, the figure said. I trust you've adhered to the terms of our agreement. Yes, sir, I replied. No cameras, just me and my dog. Good. The stranger replied. Now come meet Pastor Childers. As he lifted a tent flap, I was met with a surprising sight. I had gotten it into my head that these folks were some serpentine death cult, yet they seemed just like any other small town congregation in America. A guy was plucking a guitar at the head of the congregation, while the worshiper sang a cheerful melody of, When I hear that trumpet sound, I'm going to get up out the ground. Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. Once the musical numbers ceased, the congregation applauded the banjo player before a very distinctive-looking man took the stage. He was pale and stick-thin, 
with a shock of curly red hair and a fiery mustache, wearing white button-down and black slacks. As soon as he came into view, Tack's ears shot up, and he softly began to growl. Brothers and sisters, the man began to bellow. We welcome an esteemed guest in our humble house of worship tonight. The announcement prompted a handful of worshippers to shoot a welcoming smile at me. He's come all the way down here to the holler tonight from New York City. He talked about the place like it could have just as easily been Mars. But he isn't no federal man coming to take away your rights. He's come to show all those tyrants in Washington that what we are doing isn't harming anybody down here in God's house. Isn't that right, brothers and sisters? The congregation erupted in whoops and cheers of approval. And in a way, he was right. If folks were dying because they were dancing with rattlesnakes, that was undeniably tragic. But no one was forcing them to, and they weren't exactly going out of their way to hurt anyone. So for me, it really did raise the question, do we live in a free country or not? The pastor continued with his sermon for a spell. Then, after ushering in another musical number, walked down the center row of seats to greet me. But as he got within arm's reach, Tack exploded in a flurry of furious barks. Tack, I growled at him. Quiet boy. But Tack just would not stop. He barked so loud and so intensely that some of the worshippers were turning to us with angry looks on their faces. Brother, I really must insist you tie that thing up outside, Pastor Childress said, his cheerful demeanor slipping a little as he spoke. Normally, if someone spoke about Tack like that, I'd tell them to kick a rock. But this was work so I made an exception. I took Tack outside and asked what the hell had gotten into him. Then, for the first time since the day we had both been wounded in combat, he alerted. There were no booby traps here, no Viet Cong to worry about, but he still told me danger was present. I was concerned, but I had not come too far just to turn back. I told him to stay and assured him I'd be back in a moment. Tack laid down, shooting me a frightened look, but did as he was told. Must be that he can smell the snake on me, the pastor said when I re-entered the tent. At the time, that made all the sense in the world to me, and since he had given me a conversational window into asking him about snakes, I took the initiative. My snakes rarely bite, he said, with a warm smile. They sure got the devil in them, all serpents do, but Satan's power is weakest here in the Lord's house. However, on the occasion they do bite, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. That being said, he broke off, turning his neck to one side, revealing two dark pinprick scars upon his throat. To my knowledge, no one had ever been survived by being bitten on the neck by an eastern diamondback. Yet here stood this pastor, living, breathing proof that it was possible. Only, that wasn't quite his version of events. When I asked him how he survived, his response was cryptic, to say the least. That's just the thing, brother, he said. I didn't. When I asked him what he meant by that, the pastor called out to one of his congregations. Brother Robert, he yelled, show our guest here how we are unafraid. I watched in disbelief as a boy no older than twenty fetched a wicker basket from one side of the stage before pulling out the biggest rattlesnake I'd ever laid eyes on. Then, in rhythm with singing and clapping of the congregation, he starts bouncing this thing up and down in his grip. I expected that the rattler would just wheel around and bite him in an instant, but to my amazement, it looked completely disinterested. 
My jaw is on the floor as I am trying to figure out if it's the music, the rhythmatic bouncing, or if these snakes have been sedated before the service, and I only snap out of it when I hear the pastor speak again. You see, brother, he hissed into my ear, you see how we got the devil on a leash? I must admit, I was impressed. Balls for picking up a rattlesnake like that, but it didn't seem the least bit interested in biting him. I had to drag myself out of that awestruck stupor to get the interview back on track. I finally asked him what he meant when he said he didn't survive the snake bite. He just looked at me and grinned, his lips squirming like the truth was on the tip of his tongue. But all that came out was a Bible verse. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. My first guess was that Pastor Childers hadn't died. More like he had miraculously survived a period of unfathomable pain and suffering and lost a little of his sanity in the process. But Pastor Childers was telling the truth. Only before I could question him any further, one of the congregations let out an ear-piercing screech. Another worshiper rushed to take control of the rattler Brother Robert had been holding. While the boy himself held out his forearm, two tiny droplets of blood bubbling out before running down his alabaster skin. He had been bitten. You excuse me, brother, Pastor Choders said, as pandemonium erupted. But please, come back tomorrow night. If the boy doesn't survive, he'll be resurrected. Come see, come see. And at that, he was gone, sucked into the throng of hysterical worshippers as they flocked around the venom-stricken boy. I left disgusted at the waste of a young life, switching on my flashlight as I walked back into the darkness. Come on, boy, let's get out of here. Tack jumped up, his tail wagging in relief before we trudged off through the trees. When I awoke the next morning, I had no intention of returning to the revival tent to watch Brother Robert's resurrection. I had seen enough medics hopelessly laboring over dead men to know that once you're gone, there's no bringing you back. Instead, I planned to check out the motel before the long drive back to Syracuse. Only as I was loading up my car, I heard a soft, mousy voice calling out from behind me. Hey, mister. It was a young woman, maybe about 16 or even 17 years old. You're headed down to the warship tonight, right? I hadn't noticed her the night before, but evidently she had noticed me. Uh, no, I replied. I don't know what they're going to do with that boy, but he, he passed. She interjected, a sadness in her eyes. Last night, a few hours after you left, but they're going to bring him back tonight. She believed it too. You could hear it in her voice. I'm sorry, but you can't bring people back. I felt like a major D-bag saying it to her. But it was the truth. At least I thought it was. Your pastor is a liar. He wasn't resurrected. There's no such thing. Sure there is, mister. And you're going to tell everyone about it. I slammed my trunk shut and turned to face her. And why would you want me to tell everyone? I asked. That'll mean feds crawling all over these hills. They'll arrest your pastor and take a snakes. Because it needs to stop. All of it needs to stop. She was growing more increasingly agitated, and her voice cracked as she spoke. What they're doing down there? It's, it's wrong, sure. Most of the time, they come back okay. But every so often, they come back different, and they got to put them down. I don't want to see Robert like that. I just can't, but... They're going to, and... and... Okay, I said, cutting her off before she descended into panic. 
I'll head down to the tent again, tonight, and try to stop whatever they're going to do, okay? Thank you, mister. Thank you, the girl replied, her cheeks now slick with tears. Before I had a chance to say anything else, she was on her way. That night, me and Tack repeated the ritual of gearing up, getting in the car, and driving down to Three Forks. Only this time, I had even less of an idea of what to expect. We had hit the dead end of Laurel Fork, and again, walked through the drizzling rain towards where the tent had been the night before. Once again, they were expecting me, but when I entered, I found the tone to be very different than the night before. Instead of singing, dancing, and clapping, the congregation was silent, and there was a distinct tension in the air. Ah, Pastor Childress exclaimed as I walked in. Welcome, brother. God told me you'd return, and here you are. Childers was standing over two white plastic camping tables, which held up Brother Robert's lifeless corpse, and it was quite evident that he was dead. He had that deathly pallor about him, that same grim jaundice I had seen so many others have in Vietnam. Behind him was the same man who had welcomed me into the tent the previous night, only this time he was carrying a shotgun. Pastor, we need to talk. Not now, brother. Plenty of time to talk when Brother Robert is back. Brother Robert isn't coming back, Pastor. You and I... Please, no more talking. Pastor Childers interrupted. All your doubts will be cleared soon enough. Now take your seats, brothers and sisters. The time of rebirth is upon us. Again, Tack was growling something fierce, but he kept it low, sticking close to my side as we were awaiting to what was to come. We got something special here, folks, Chitters began. There's something in these hills that God put here long, long ago, and we must show our gratitude for it. A smattering of amens came back from the congregation before the pastor continued. So, will it be with the resurrection of the dead? He said, his voice rising with every sentence. The body that is sown is perishable, but it's raised imperishable. It's sown into dishonor, but it was raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. The congregation were calling back to him now, as he motioned to a man off stage. Bring me the serpent that took this boy's life. Pastor Childers bellowed, and at his command, the man picked up the same wicker basket that Brother Robert had carried just the night before. And it was the snake that killed him, still alive and still deadly. Childers whipped open the lid, plunged his hand into the basket, and raised the snake up by its head. And as he held it up to the congregation, he produced a small knife and began to slice through the snake's throat. Once it had been decapitated, another member of the congregation appeared to be holding a large glass bowl, and the snake's blood was carefully and methodically drained into it before they continued. The pastor Childers placed the snake's remains on Brother Thomas's lifeless chest before taking a short step back. I declare to you, Brothers and sisters, he bellowed, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We will not sleep. We will all be changed. The congregation began to whoop and holler, and in turn, Pastor Childers' intensity began to build. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. He was foaming at the mouth now, fire and brimstone in his words. Then and only then we will have the saying that will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 
As Pastor Childers ranted and raved, my attention was suddenly drawn away from him. The headless snake that lay on Robert's chest it began to move. It was only slight at first, little twitches that could easily be mistaken as belated death rose, but soon it was unmistakable. The snake, the dead snake, was moving. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Childers screamed, motioning to the sheer impossibility before him. Where, O oh death, is your sting? And at that, the snake began to slither, stump first into Brother Robert's open mouth and down into his throat. I could not believe what I was seeing. Watching the headless, blood-soaked snake disappear down Brother Robert's throat was the single most horrifying thing I had ever witnessed. Nothing I had seen in Nam could possibly compare. But instead of running for their lives, the congregation were in raptures. Some were weeping, others spoke in tongues, the rest simply stood there, as in a deep trance swaying from side to side. Me, on the other hand, it was like I was dumbstruck. I was glued to that spot, just clamoring to comprehend what the hell I was seeing. Then, when I thought things couldn't get any more insane, Brother Robert woke up. Tack was just about losing his mind at this point, unleashing a flurry of high-pitched whines as he tugged at the sleeve of my jacket. He was begging me to leave, but I just couldn't. I remember putting a hand on my mouth in pure shock, watching as Brother Robert coughed, sputtered, and gasped for air. He looked terrified, his sunken eyes wide and fearful, and they darted around the room in confusion. The congregation spilled out of their seats toward him. People were weeping. Others cried out, Hallelujah! The joy they felt was otherworldly, and as Brother Robert embraced his loved ones after a long, deep sleep, he began to smile. All eyes were on Robert. Not a single person wanted this moment to be missed, this miracle of a resurrection. All except one. The girl who had visited me at the motel. She was staring at me. The desperate look in her eyes that screamed for God's sake to do something. But I didn't have anything to do. Because Robert did it for me. Give me some room. Pastor Childers cried out. Let me welcome our dear brother back into the land of the living. The congregation rescinded like waves from a beach allowing Childers to get face to face with the still smiling Robert. Only as I watched him approach... I noticed there was something horribly wrong about Robert's face. His eyes were wide open, almost like he didn't have any eyelids at all, and his smile was stretched so unnaturally wide that I swear you could see every single one of his teeth. It wasn't a happy smile. It was something else. Something terrifying. Robert, Childers asked. Robert, it's me, Pastor Childers. I want to... Childers was silenced by the lightning-fast movement of Robert's arms. In an instant... His hands were wrapped around the pastor's throat. He gasped for air as the congregation leapt to his defense, trying to pry Robert's hands off of his neck. But it was no good. For a man who had been clinically deceased just a few moments before, Robert was horrifyingly strong, and we all heard the moment he crushed the pastor's larynx with a sickening crunch. Robert then swung the pastor around, knocking down several of the congregation as he flung the man's limp body in the direction. Robert, no, what in the God's name are you doing? Yet it was as if he could not hear them. He simply grabbed another member of the congregation and sunk his teeth into her face. The scream she let out was gut-wrenching, punctuated by the sound of a shotgun shell racking into the chamber. Get the hell off of her, Robert. The armed man roared, aiming the barrel squarely at his head. Robert let go, spitting out the chewed remains of her nose on the earthen floor of the tent. 
and with that same sick smile splitting his face into two, he slowly turned back towards the armed man. Please, Robert, he said. Please snap out of it. Robert responded by taking a few slow steps toward him, before suddenly and violently lunging. Buckshot tore through the right side of Robert's skull, popping it open like a smashed watermelon. The boy stood there for a moment, staggering to and fro, and then it looked like he was about to drop. Then out of nowhere, Robert once again lunged towards the man, grabbing hold of the shotgun and using it as leverage to smash what remained of his forehead into the man's mouth. He fell back, letting go of the shotgun, blood pouring from his pulverized lips. Robert had racked around into the shotgun, a percussive hit to the melody of the downed man's pleas for his life. Some of his teeth fell out of his mouth as he begged. Robert aimed the shotgun square at the man's hands, clasped together in a prayer, and fired. The man howled as everything above the wrist simply disintegrated, all while the congregation begged Robert to come to his senses. Instead, he racked another round into the chamber, aimed the shotgun at the wounded man's head, and fired. The sound of his scream degenerating into a gurgle still haunts my nightmares, and that was the moment I came to my own senses and got the hell out of that revival tent. Run, boy, run, I screamed, but Tack did not need to be told. He bolted on ahead as the sounds of the unfolding massacre echoed through the trees behind us, and here's where I bring up my wounded leg. Remember the one I told you about 12 pages back? It means I can't run very far or very fast, and we ended up paying for it, because at one point I looked back to see something catching up to us. I think it's another survivor from the tent, but when I turn, all I see is Brother Robert, hurling towards me, shotgun in hand. He pumps one final round into the chamber, raises the shotgun, and then something else tears past me in the darkness. It was Tack barreling towards the thing that used to be Brother Robert, and, with his good eye, it tracked Tack as he leapt towards him and took its last shot. The next thing I see is Brother Robert in the dirt and Tack has him by the throat, whipping his neck back and forth, chewing and piercing, drowning Robert in his own blood. At first, I didn't think that'd finish him off, but when Tack climbed off of him and Robert ceased to move, I breathed a deep sigh of relief, but it was one taken far too soon. No sooner than I had said good boy, Tack collapsed to the ground. The thing that used to be Robert had indeed landed his final shot, filling Tack's gut full of buckshot in the seconds before he delivered the killer blow. I went into autopilot, picked Tack up and ran as fast as I could back to the car, driving like a man possessed, not even sure where I was headed. I just remember looking over at him at one point to see if he was still alive, if he was still with me. And he was gone. His big brown eyes stared off into oblivion. I pulled the car over to the side of the highway and burst into tears. I never loved anything in my whole life like I loved that dog. After we got back from Nam and the things had gotten bad for a while, he was the only thing that kept me from eating my gun. Every single time I thought about ending it, I think who's going to feed Tack? And that was that. All the guys whose lives he had saved, they'd kick my ass if they knew I'd ever dared to mistreat him. He was my best friend in the world, and now he was gone. I tried and failed to save his life, just like he had saved mine that day in the jungle, and just like he did that day in Three Forks. And that's just something I must live with. I couldn't bring myself to write up the story. I just apologized to my editor and told him I had to pass on it. After all, who in their right minds would believe me? When he asked about what happened in Kentucky, I just told him it was a hunting accident. A few years later, I took a job down in Florida, 
working as the sports correspondent for the Gainesville Sun, and I ended up retiring here too. I mean, to go back to Three Forks one day, to really address what happened, just not yet, not yet. I have a new dog these days, also ex-military, and he's also a German Shepherd. I think he takes more care of me than I take care of him at this point, and he certainly makes for a better company than my ex-wife. As for a name, I call him Junior, and I don't think I have to tell you who that's after. Thanks for listening to this creepy story written by Sam Writing. If you enjoyed his writing, please be sure to check out some of his other works. You can find links to do so in the description down below. If you enjoyed this story, please be sure to hit that like button as it helps me out a ton. The more likes this episode gets, the more YouTube promotes it to fresh new eyes, and that's incredibly helpful to the swamp. If you're new to the swamp, why not join us? Hit that subscribe button and turn on notifications to never miss a new episode as I upload them nearly every single day, and all things natural and supernatural. If you're listening to this on iTunes or another podcast platform, please be sure to give us a follow over there, and leave us a five-star rating if you could. That's very helpful to the show. If you're on the go, but don't have YouTube Premium, but still want to listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories wherever you are, you can download them absolutely free from iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and anywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I'd love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp, and stories like yours that truly help keep this show going. If you guys would like to support the swamp outside of hitting that like button, subscribing, and maybe giving us a 5-star rating on iTunes, check out the merch store. I've got t-shirts, hoodies, and more. I'd love to see you guys wearing some cool swamp threads. Don't forget to join me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and I'll see you soon with another creepy video.